0: God bless us and the Virgin protect us. Once again, I want to explicitly acknowledge my debt and gratitude to Our Lady of Fatima. She has to take the credit for anything good or true or beautiful in these novena conferences and the faults are mine. Ave Maria Parissima, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Yesterday, we considered more of the messages and some of the miracles of the Virgin of Revelation. We saw that in regards to these messages, Cardinal Jose Martins, the Prefect Emeritus of the Congregation for the Cause of Saints, said that he personally considered the publication of these messages to be of great spiritual benefit. The warnings of the Virgin over the course of half a century have an undeniable catechetical and prophetic value. We heard the Virgin say to her priest's sons that Jesus has been forgotten and abandoned by them. We saw that she warned them they were becoming worldly that many of them were giving bad example, that they had completely forgotten the gospel. We saw that she warned them not to remove their cassock or their habit, because they're reminders and heavenly signs. We saw that she warned that the stripping of those exterior signs of the priesthood would be the visible confirmation that charity had grown cold, and that she was citing a line from chapter 24 of St. Matthew's Gospel. Then on that basis, we organized in loose fashion excerpts from many of Bruno's messages, visions, and prophetic dreams. We saw that she warned that the world will enter into another war more ruthless than the previous ones. We saw that she warned there will be a tremendous earthquake that will shake the entire globe. We saw that she warned about false apparitions. We heard the Virgin making call after call for conversion, especially to her priest's sons. We heard the Virgin give warning after warning of eternal damnation, especially to her priest's sons. We heard the Virgin warn priests not to reject the ancient holy things and to not provoke schisms. We heard the Virgin warn that the entire church would be put to the test, especially by means of false ideologies and theologies to clean up the carnage that is infiltrated among its ministers. We heard the Virgin warn that false prophets will exchange the true doctrine of the Lord for satanic doctrines and that they will remove the sacrifice of the cross from the altars of the world. We saw that the Virgin warned that before Russian converts and leaves the way of atheism, a tremendous and severe persecution will arise. We heard the warning, starting in the 1940s, that the Muslims would suddenly come from the East they will receive the power to subjugate those whom they call infidels and to break the most holy and sacred things. We saw that Bruno had many visions involving great sufferings for Christians, imprisonments, beatings, deaths, blood flowing in the street, all because they believe in and love the Eucharist, the Immaculate Virgin, and the Pope. We saw that Bruno had visions of a Pope fleeing, of being wounded, of being killed. We saw that Bruno had visions of the last days of the world that the Deluge, Sodom, and Gomorrah put together united with the last days of Pompeii, were nothing compared to what he had seen. We saw that Bruno had a vision of a pope who would deny the truths of the faith and put himself in the place of God. We heard the command of the Virgin that we should preserve the weapon of victory which is the faith, that we should love one another with humility in our hearts. We heard the cry of the Virgin that all sinners should come to the heart of Jesus, to come to the heart of the mother, They will be consoled, and they will be unburdened of their sorrows. We heard the Virgin remind everyone that God not only gave us the true faith, but with it, the only way of salvation, the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church under Peter, the Roman pontiff. We heard the Virgin warn that salvation is not bringing together all religions to make of them a cluster of heresies and mistakes, but to convert them, rather, to the unity of love and faith. We saw that Our Lady works miracles with the soil of the grotto. We saw that the miracle of the sun was visible at the grotto on April 12th of 1980, 1982, 1985, 1986, and 1987, and that it was even filmed by Italian TV in 1986. And finally, we saw that as early as June 1948, Bruno had recorded in his diary, the Virgin made me understand that the message of Fatima, continues at Tre Fontane. Now, even had Bruno not written anything at all about Fatima in his diary, and there's actually more than one reference, the reoccurrence of the miracle of the sun to large crowds at the grotto multiple times, from the 33rd anniversary to the 40th anniversary of her first appearance to Bruno, these repeated miracles are also obvious signs pointing directly towards Fatima and that this happens so many times on April 12th is also an obvious sign of a link between the apparitions in Rome and those in Fatima. Okay, so these are signs pointing towards Fatima, signs that demonstrate a link between the apparitions at Tre Fontane and those in Fatima. But obviously there's more to it than that. Heaven never acts without a purpose. What do these things mean in themselves? What does the miracle of the sun mean in itself? What is Our Lady telling us by repeating that stupendous miracle so many times? Why did she do that? And what does it mean to say that the message of Fatima continues at Tre Fontane? Let's start addressing these questions, starting with the question, What does the miracle of the sun mean in itself? Now, in order to properly address this question, first we need to talk briefly about symbolism, and then we need to take a closer look at the miracle as it appeared originally in Fatima on October 13, 1917. So we'll talk briefly about Christian symbolism. Symbols communicate to us in a heavenly language, a heavenly language, as it were, so that all of those who have the light of faith to see things can understand. Heaven is and always will be speaking to us in symbols because the things of God are so far beyond our words and our ability to comprehend the realities of the spiritual world. As one iconographer wrote, quote, symbolism expresses indirectly through images that which cannot be expressed directly in material or verbal forms. Being a mysterious language, symbolism also hides truths which it reflects from those who are not open to the truth and makes them understandable to those who know how to approach them." Close quote. Another author gives us a different angle on these same realities while treating of symbolism in sacred scripture. Quote: Biblical symbolism and imagery is not a code. Biblical symbolism, like poetry, is evocative language, used when discursive, specific language is insufficient. The Bible uses evocative imagery to call up to our minds various associations which have been established by the Bible's own literary art. For example, if in Revelation 13, St. John would have wanted to say Nero, he would have said Nero. Instead, he said beast. By using the symbol beast, he was not just giving a code for Nero, he was bringing to mind a whole series of biblical associations. The beast in the garden, Nebuchadnezzar turned into a beast, the three beasts in Daniel's vision, and so forth. Well, let quote. Okay, so by means of the miracle of the sun, heaven is telling us something. We're being told something, but by means of symbolism. And we've seen that symbolism is a mysterious language which expresses realities which cannot be expressed directly in material or verbal forms, in a direct way by using images or even poetic language. Now all of you are very familiar with this, of course, because that's exactly how your Holy Father, St. John of the Cross, uh, addresses and expresses himself in mysterious evocative poetic language when he's writing The Dark Night, for example. We've also seen that Christian symbolism is meant to bring up a whole host of various related ideas. In, one, in, in other words one symbol canon is meant to stand for and to bring to mind a whole series of related spiritual concepts. And there's another very important principle to keep in mind. Christian symbolism hide truths which, to those who are not open to the truth and makes them understandable to those who know how to approach it. Anyone who's read the Gospels carefully is aware that the parables of our Lord work in exactly the same way. The parables are, by virtue of their form as well as their content, a rebuke to the Jewish leadership and a warning of coming judgment. Now, why is that? Because here, and now I'm going to paraphrase some commentators, A parable hides the truth which it contains to those who are not open to the truth, yet it's understandable to those who are open to the truth. Our Lord Himself made this very clear in the Gospel of Saint Mark, chapter four, verses eleven and twelve. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. At this point, our Lord is alluding to a passage in the sixth chapter of the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah was commissioned to speak to Israel. I quote from the prophet. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Okay, that's fair enough, but now listen to the next lines. This is really important. Isaiah, then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, the land is a desolate waste. The Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. In other words, the very fact that the Lord was teaching in parables was itself a prophetic sign of upcoming judgment on the nation. He's making the point that first century Judea was in the same wretched condition that Israel was in the days of Isaiah, and as a consequence was facing the same outcome. Its cities were going to be laid waste, and its people slaughtered and scattered. And all that, of course, came to pass. And keep in mind that from the very beginning of his ministry, even the Sanhedrin knew that Christ had been sent by God. After all, what does Nicodemus say to him right at the beginning of his public ministry? Rabbi, we know that art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou dost unless God be with him. They knew right out the gate. Our Lord taught in parables because the hearts of the people were not open to his messages. They heard his message, but they didn't understand. He wasn't hiding the truth, them, They just didn't want to hear it. The people who believed would understand the parables. Our Lord intended the veiled meaning of his words to be revealed to anyone that was seeking the truths to be found in them. But as we know, the great majority were not interested in seeking those truths. Our Lord preached to a perverse generation. His message reached a remnant of Israel, but left the rest, hardened, unresponsive, and under his judgment. And we can see each one of these elements at play in Fatima. In Fatima, there are symbolic messages given, but the three little children begging the secrets of the Immaculate Heart. The three little children were given the explanations of what these things mean, but for those outside, everything is in symbols. So they may indeed see, but not perceive, and hear, but not understand. So, for example, St. Francisco saw everything that the girls saw, but he never heard a word in any of the apparitions. In fact, when the angel of Portugal had told them to pray, make sacrifices for sinners, he laid awake all night wondering what the angel had said. And he didn't find out the next day till Lucia and St. Jacinta told him. On July 13th, after Our Lady had showed them the visions and explained them to Lucia and St. Jacinta, she told Lucia, quote, "'Do not tell this to anyone.'" Francisco, yes, you may tell him. And on january third, nineteen forty-four, after Sister Lucia had been told to write the Third Secret, had been struggling so mightily to be obey, she'd been struggling since the middle of September. She's trying to obey, but she couldn't, tries might, she couldn't get it committed to paper. But then on January third, nineteen forty-four, Our Lady appeared to her and told her, Be at peace and write what they order you. But not what has been given to you to understand its meaning. Close quote. At that point, Sister Lucia was instantly able to commit the vision to paper. Write what they order you, but not what has been given you to understand its meaning. In other words, the very format of the third secret itself, as it's been revealed to us, is already a sign of judgment, a sign of the condition of men's hearts. Seeing, you will see, and hear. you will not see, and hearing, you will not understand. In Fatima, there are symbolic messages, but the three little children were given the secrets of the immaculate heart. The three little children were given the explanations of what these things meant. But for those outside, everything is in symbols. I would suggest that the very fact that Our Lady teaches in symbols is perfectly analogous to the reason Our Lord taught in parables. It is, in fact, a prophetic sign itself of upcoming judgment. Our Lady teaches in symbols because for the most part, the hearts of the people were not and are not open to her message. But also like our Lord, our Our Lady intends the veiled meanings of her symbolic messages to be revealed to those seeking the truths to be found in them. So now let's consider what the miracle of the sun means in itself. We saw that in order to properly address this question, First, we need to talk briefly about symbolism, which we've just done. And then we need to take a closer look at that miracle as it appeared originally in Fatima on October 13, 1917. We'll turn to the miracle. In 1917, Portugal was ruled by the Freemasons. For the most part, the Portuguese press and the social elites were extremely hostile to Catholicism. It was so bad that Lisbon had been proclaimed to be the atheistic capital of the world. So there's many uh, parallels to our situation. For three months, since July 13th, three small children who could neither read nor write, Lucia dos Santos, 10 years old, and two cousins, now St. Francisco Marto, nine years old, and St. Jacinta Marto, seven years old, have been predicting that Our Lady would perform a great miracle on October 13th. A miracle had been publicly announced three months in advance as to the precise date time, and place. There is literally nothing like this in the entire history of the world. The precise date, time, and place of a public miracle had been announced three months in advance in a country controlled by the Freemasons, by illiterate peasant children from a tiny village in the hills of Portugal. And so it was that on October 13, 1917, Some 70,000 eyewitnesses, men, women, and children from every social class and cultural level, believers and unbelievers alike, were standing in the COVID area, a muddy sheep pasture. It was pouring rain, and had been all morning, but about a half hour before noon, solar time, Lucia asked everyone to close their umbrellas out of respect and begin the rosary. And for the most part, the crowd obeyed. The rain suddenly stopped, and just as suddenly, The sky completely cleared. This abrupt change of weather caught everyone by surprise. Lucia cried, look at the sun. The people could look on the sun with no pain. It appeared as a pale disk. And then the sun started shooting out light, lighting the atmosphere, the trees, the ground, the people, and the different colors of the rainbow. Then the sun began making strange abrupt movements, dancing, spinning. The people began crying out, marvel, marvel. Realizing they were in the presence of something holy, most, but not all of the men, uncovered their heads. The sun stopped moving. Then it began to dance and spin again. It stopped. It began to dance and spin a third time. Immediately immediately after this was the most terrifying aspect of the miracle. The sun suddenly seemed to plunge towards the earth. We'll quote from eyewitnesses. Quote, then suddenly one heard a clamor a cry of anguish breaking from all the people. The sun whirling wildly seemed all at once to loosen itself from the firmament, and blood red plunged towards the earth, threatening to crush us with its huge and fiery weight. The sensation in those moments was truly terrible. It seemed like a wheel of fire which was going to fall on the people, close quotes. End quote. Everyone within an area of 32 miles thought it was the end of the world. One witness, who was later a contractor in California, was about 11 miles away from Fatima. He was 12 years old, and he was herding sheep. He said, I don't remember to this day what happened to the sheep. All I can remember is this fireball came down upon Earth, and I knew I was about to be burnt alive. And I ran, and I ran, and I ran. All I can remember is my fear. And I've often waked up at night running from the fire. Quote, we thought it was the end of the world. The fire of the sun was on top of us. At the time that the fire was coming on, there were shouts. Parents were throwing themselves, protecting over all their children. People were shouting their sins out loud and confessing, crying for mercy. They fell to the knees in the mud in the water, confessed their sins, and called for mercy. And what happened? The fire went back into the sky. Close quotes. These are all quotes from eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses who thought they were about to be burnt alive, burnt to death with fire falling from the heavens. Terrified parents instinctively throwing themselves at their children to protect them. People screaming out their sins and crying out mer- for mercy. Eyewitnesses, who thought it was the end of the world, and all those people who were for the most part soaked to the bone, were amazed to discover that they were dry, and so was the ground. At least seventy thousand witnesses braving the rain and mud. The clouds part, disappear, clear sky. The sun shoots all the colors, the rainbow. It whirls and spins and dances three times, breaks free, hurtles towards the earth. People are convinced they're about to be burnt alive. They're falling on their knees in the mud and water, crying out for mercy, and then the sun retreats, leaving everyone in dry clothes on dry ground. At least 70,000 witnesses, and many of them not believers. There are also many moral miracles. Many of the previously unbelieving witnesses converted. The three children had a series of apparitions at the same time that the crowd was witnessing the miracle of the sun. We'll get to that in a few minutes. The miracle of the sun and the prophecy of that miracle three months in advance are verifiable historical facts. and It's completely and utterly amazing. Just to make sure we have some idea of how amazing it is, we should pause there for a moment to put this event into its proper historical context. If we step back a little bit and consider the entire history of the world to put the miracle of the sun into context, we can see we have five roughly comparable events. Five miracles of absolutely incredible magnitude in the same rough category. There's the parting of the Red Sea by Moses. There's the stopping of the sun and the moon in the sky by Joshua. There's the moving back of the sun a full ten hours in the sky by the prophet Isaiah. There's the total eclipse of the sun during a full moon, which is a complete impossibility, which took place at the crucifixion of our Lord. And there's the miracle of the sun by Our Lady. And only one of those was publicly announced, date, time, place beforehand. Only one. So, in the whole history of the world, there are five of these miracles. Four of those miracles are found in the Holy Bible three in the Old Testament, and one in the New Testament. And out of those miracles, the only one that was predicted beforehand, three months beforehand, as to the precise date, time, and place, happened in our own time. That's Fatima. It's completely incredible. It's a miracle of Biblical proportions, literally. That's not an exaggeration. It's a miracle of Biblical proportions. and In all of world history, there is nothing like it. You should let that sink in. You should let that sink in. That's important. That tells us something as well. But in spite of the magnitude of this miracle, it's been treated like the biggest non-event in history. Oh, Miracle of the Sun. Jan, I wonder what's on Channel 45. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if there are more people who knew who won the World Cup in soccer last year or even 10 years ago than there are people who know about the Miracle of the Sun. We've had 100 years of scripture scholars with all kinds of big degrees, writing learned disquisitions, in which they tell us that Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible, telling us that the Bible's just chock full of myths we picked up from the pagans, the prophecies are impossible, denying the miracles of Christ, etc., etc., etc. Our seminaries are full of these kind of professors. Why haven't they been praying on, meditating, studying, and writing about the miracle of the Son? So what does it mean? What does it mean in itself? Saint Vincent Ferrer gives a general principle in regards to warnings in the sky. I quote, by study of Holy Scripture, by factual experience, we know that when any great and heavy affliction is about to come on the world, often some warning sign is shown in the sky. This happens by the mercy of God so that people, forewarned of impending tribulation by means of these signs, may obtain a tribunal of mercy through prayer and good works, a reversal of the sentence passed against them by God, or at least by penance and amendment of life, may prepare themselves against impending affliction." Close quote. Okay, so when a great affliction is about to come on the world, heaven often puts a warning in the sky so people may either avert the punishment through prayers and penance, and they prepare themselves to suffer the affliction. Let's turn to particulars. Signs of judgment in the heavens. Everyone knows that the sun, moon, and stars separate the day from the night and are used to mark out our days, years, and seasons. But how many of us have stopped to consider that God has also deliberately set them up there for signs? In Genesis 1.14, we read, quote, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Close quote, the inspired, inerrant word of God. Obviously, we're all familiar with the Star of Bethlehem as a sign of our Lord's birth. We're all familiar with the miraculous eclipse of the sun during the full moon on that first Good Friday as a sign that the creator of the world was hanging on the cross. In both scripture and tradition, Signs of judgment in the heavens portend God's wrath, falling in judgment. They're prophetic signs that foreshadow the overthrow and destruction of kingdoms, nations, or peoples, and ultimately the world. For example, in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 13, we read of signs of judgment in the heavens, and I quote, The day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, the sun will be dark at its rising and the moon has, will not shed its light. I it will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place." Close quote. Now, in this case, the prophet is referring to the upcoming destruction of Babylon, which is also in itself a type of the end of the world. So one of the reasons God has set the sun, the moon, and the stars up there is to be used as signs of his upcoming judgments. The sun, the moon, and the stars also symbolize rulers and governors. Why? Because heaven rules the earth and those things placed in the firmament, the sun, moon, and the stars symbolize rulers here on earth. Cornelius the the great 16th century Bible commentator, makes this clear when he's speaking of corrupt rulers. Quote, the sun, moon, and stars are obscured when the leaders of the church or the world depart from justice and holiness to depravity or wickedness. Close quote. The rain and the rainbow. Beams of light in general are symbolic of graces and virtues from heaven shining down. And of course, they're shining down on the people gathered in the Kova. And light is also symbolic of faith. The beams of light were shining on the people. But were the people reflecting that light by a life of faith, and a life of charity? The downpour which suddenly ceased, followed immediately by the clearing of the sky and then the sun shooting out various colors, reminds us of the great flood and the rainbow. The rainbow is a visible reminder on the one hand that even if we don't understand, as long as we're faithful and obedient, like Noah and his family, then even if the whole world be swallowed up in a flood, God is merciful and will take care of us. So that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, the rainbow is also a sign of what happens to men if they're evil and faithless and disobey God. The rainbow is a visible sign that God will never destroy the world again with water, and so this aspect of the miracle reminds us of God's judgment. One commentator points out that the Hebrew word for rainbow that Moses used is the same word used to refer to the bow as a military weapon. The idea implied in Genesis passage seems to be that God has taken the weapon that he's used to judge his creatures and he's hung it in the sky. That's perfectly consistent with the ancient Jewish understanding. They understood that when the waters subsided, God placed the rainbow in the heavens as a sign of the covenant he had made with Noah. The rainbow is God's immense bow of war, but God lays aside his bow and hangs it in the clouds. The 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 ends of the bow are pointed downwards in the same manner as when a warrior lowers his bow when he declares peace. It's a sign that his wrath is cooled. It's a sign he would not again flood the world, It's a sign there would be peace between God and man as long as man did not go back to the days of Noah. But the rainbow is also a reminder that if man does break the covenant with God and returns to the days of Noah, then a worse chastisement will fall upon him. Like the flood, it will be a worldwide destruction. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, fire will fall from the sky and destroy the world. So the rainbow is a promise, but it's also a warning that God hates sin, and he's destroyed everything once before, and he will do it again. And the warning is very clear. Men must not return back to the days of Noah. Okay, so what does that mean? To say that men must not return back to the days of Noah. That's easy to see, simply by consulting the ancient Jewish commentaries known as the Midrash. They say precisely what sins were going on in Noah's day that provoked God to destroy the world with water. I will quote, in two different places, these ancient commentaries state that, quote, the generation of the flood was not wiped out until they wrote marriage documents for the union of a man to a man or a man to an animal, close quote. The generation of the flood was not wiped out until they wrote marriage documents for the union of a man to a man or a man to an animal. In other words, the sins which provoked the Great Flood were the same sins which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven, and are sadly enough the same sins which we have going on all around us these days, not only approved and promoted, but even protected by our federal government and many other governments throughout the world. The rainbow is a warning and a reminder to all who have eyes to see. The St. Gregory the Great pointed out, quote, because the rainbow has the colors of water and fire, it is a reminder of the great flood, as well as the future destruction of the world by fire. The rainbow reminds us that in days of Noah, we broke the covenant and called down judgment upon ourselves, and now it's hung up in the sky as a sign that God won't destroy the world again with water. But it's also a reminder that if man returns to the days of Noah, if man breaks that union with God, is no longer being fruitful and multiplying, if man ignores the warning of the rainbow by mocking God with perverse marriages, then fire will fall from the sky and will destroy the world. And isn't it interesting that the sodomites have chosen the rainbow as a symbol for their movement? There are seven different colors in God's rainbow, Seven's the number of completion and perfection. But the gay pride flag, and what an appropriate use of that word pride, the gay pride flag uses the rainbow, and over time it has wound up with a six-colored rainbow flag as a representation of their perverse movement. Of course, the number six is the number of incompleteness and imperfection. Their flag is a complete mockery of the sign that God made with man, the seven-colored rainbow. It's truly diabolical. It's a public proclamation. It's mankind symbolically saying that we will not serve you, honor you, or obey our covenant with you. And in a satanic inversion of Fatima, on the very night that these very type of marriages called on God's judgment in the great flood were decriminalized in these United States, that very gay pride rainbow was projected in the darkness of night on the White House. dancing of the sun. In ancient times if a rabbi were asked to quote a scripture, he had to give a sort of an explanation as he did it. The explanation was called a targum. It's a sign of a cross between a translation and a prayer phrase. A targum on Deuteronomy 28, 15. Describes the reaction to Moses' announcement of curses coming on Israel. Because that's the section where the curse is on Israel. Here's the targum. The earth trembled, the heavens were moved, the sun and moon were darkened, and the stars withdrew their beams. As The scripture commentator says, quote, the cosmic order of nature in the course of the sun, moon, and stars was seen as essential to the ongoing welfare of the world's existence. This order is interrupted and dissolved when men go against the spiritual order of God's laws, which are to regulate the course of their lives. Hence, God judges the heavens by stro- destroying its orderly movements in order to indicate that mankind has violated his moral order and is being judged. He alters the fixed patterns of sun, moon, and stars to indicate judgment on those who have wrongly altered his moral patterns, especially through idolatry. Close quote. Now, St. Alphonsus summarizes the teaching of the fathers in, regarding, in regards to a line in Chapter 4 of St. Matthew's Gospel and the powers of heaven shall be moved. I quote from St. Alphonsus. Another sign of the end of the world will be, and the powers of heaven shall be moved. Some understand this to mean tremors and unusual movements which will occur in the heavens. That is, the firmness of the heavens will seem to be lacking, as they will tremble before the Lord comes to judge the world. Close quote. Let's consider the falling of the sun. St. Alphonsus again. Quote, the coming of the judge will be preceded by fire. Fire will descend from heaven and shall burn the earth and all things upon the earth. The earth, defiled by sin, must be purified by fire. Close quote, St. Alphonsus Liguori. So the falling of the sun is meant to remind us of the fire from the sky that totally destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. At the same time, it's also meant to remind us of the fire from the sky that both scripture and tradition tell us will destroy the world before our Lord comes to judge the living and the dead. And so this aspect of miracles also meant to remind us of God's judgment. And as we've seen, witnesses themselves were convinced that when the sun was falling, they were actually seeing the end of the world. Parting the clouds and the dry land. The day started out with torrential rains and ended with dry land. To remind everybody of two incredible events in the Bible. The great flood, we've already talked about that, but also to remind them of the parting of the Red Sea. Each of those events are well known worldwide, many including Catholics, and massive number of priests, most especially seminary professors and so-called scripture scholars, have now come to believe and teach that these are just pious stories written to teach lessons. In other words, God's word is nothing of the sort but just really a really old Middle Eastern version of, of Mother Goose or the Grimm Brothers. We'll talk briefly about the parting of the Red Sea. The Lord leads the people out of Egypt with a pillar of fire and parts the Red Sea so they can cross on dry land. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed and the people are free. Even though they're in a desert, they're fed with the miraculous manna falling from heaven and they're given water from the rock to drink. In spite of all that, the people of Israel are often longing to be back in Egypt. And then when they're given a chance, they return to the pagan practice of Egypt by building the golden calf and as the scriptures tell us, Moses says, they rose up to play. That's a euphemism that Moses used to refer to perverse and impure behavior, as any good commentary will make clear. This incident and the fact that from that point forward, God forbids them from eating pork, that's the food of the Egyptians, and makes them kill and eat bulls and rams, which are all Egyptian pagan deities. This incident and the punishment are all clear signs that even though God took the people out of Egypt, Egypt hadn't been taken out of the people. The people of Egypt, had, or Israel, had walked unharmed on dry land through that sea. They had been set free from their slavery and seen with their own eyes the power and might of God and all his marvels, but they hadn't changed their hearts. Their hearts were still back in Egypt. St. Paul tells us that these things are written for our instruction. In other words, Exodus is a type of our Christian life, the passage to the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies is a type of baptism and freedom from sin and slavery to Satan. The manna is a type of the most blessed sacrament, feeding us in our Christian journey. The passage over the Jordan to the Holy Land is a type of our passing to heaven after holy death. That being said, how many of these 600,000 men, not counting women and children, that left Egypt, went through the Red Sea with this amazing miracle, saw the miracles, Mount Sinai, the, the different plagues in Egypt, how many of those 600,000 men, and that's not counting the women and children, that were adults when they left Egypt, made it alive into the promised land? Two, just two, Caleb and Joshua. Two, out of 600,000 adult men, two made it into the Promised Land. The rest died out there in the desert as a punishment for their sins. So the parting of the clouds and the dry land is a sobering symbolic reminder that viewing marvels and miracles is not enough. We have to repent from our sins break away from our sinful attachments, and have a true conversion of our hearts. We have to cleave to the living God, and not only the false idols of this world, wealth, power, sinful pleasures. Words are not enough. It didn't work for the people of Israel, and it won't work for us. It has to come from the heart, with true faith and true charity. There's more symbolism, but that's more than enough to formulate a decent answer to the question, what does the miracle of the sun mean in itself? Well, it's a symbolic message with many aspects. It portends God's wrath, falling in judgment, reminds us of the flood, reminds us that if we return to the days of Noah, if we break that union with God are no longer being fruitful multiplying, if we ignore the warning of the rainbow by mocking God with perverse marriage, then fire will fall from the sky and will destroy the world. It's a reminder that we must not fall in the footsteps of the people of Exodus, that our words and exterior actions are not enough, but we must truly repent. We must truly convert from our hearts and follow the one true God and no other all the days of our lives, with no compromise. It's a reminder of the end of the world, that God's judgment is looming. Noah preached for a hundred years before the flood struck. And as we know, almost no one paid any attention to his warning. The miracle of the sun is a very, very clear warning from Our Lady about upcoming events. It's a wake-up call for all those with eyes to see. But as it was in the days of Noah, so it is in our days. Very few seem to be taking her warnings seriously either as we close in on the 100th anniversary of the miracle of the Son, we should ask ourselves if anyone has paid any attention to Our Lady's warning. So we've considered the meaning of the miracle itself. We've briefly considered what a grave war- warning it is in and of itself. We don't have time today to answer the questions about what Our Lady is telling us by repeating that stupendous miracle so many times and why she did that. Or what does it mean to say that the message of Fatima continues at Tre Fontani? But there is one other message or aspect of the, of the miracle of Senate Fatima we should consider before we close. And that's what the children saw during the miracle. In September, Our Lady had told the children that, quote, in October, our Lord will come as well as Our Lady of Sorrows and Our Lady of Mount Carmel. St. Joseph will appear with the child Jesus to bless the world, close quote. In October, then, right at the end of her apparition, Our Lady opened her hands, and her own light reflected on the sun as she continued to ascend. And that's when Lucia cried out, Look at the sun. After Our Lady had disappeared in the vastness of the sky, then the children saw, next to the sun. But on the left, St. Joseph, together with the child Jesus, who was about one years old, they blessed the world three times. On the right of the sun, they saw Our Lady of the Rosary, dressed in blue and white. This is oftentimes referred to as the apparition of the Holy Family. Saint Joseph, the father of the family, the head of the family, is holding our Lord and Our Lady is at their side. And the blessings given were meant to bring peace to the world. But just reflect how over this past century, since that vision, that most fundamental unit of society, the family, where the father is the head of the family the mother underneath his authority is the heart of the family, and the child in loving obedience to both parents. Just reflect how the God-given family structure has largely been destroyed. Fatherhood has been mocked, ridiculed, and rejected in so many ways. Under the influence of cultural Marxism, which is one of the terrible errors of Russia, the headship of the father of his wife and family has been largely rejected, and with it went the fatherhood of God woman has usurped the role as the head of the family, and godly loving obedience is a rare commodity indeed. And of course, we see this very phenomenon in the spiritual realm in the church itself. There's precious little fatherhood left in the church. So among other things, this apparition is a call to return to the proper model of the family, a return to recognizing the proper headship of the man and most especially, God the Father, and a symbolic promise of peace when we do. This apparition faded, and Lucia saw our Lord dressed in red, who blessed the world, and beside him stood Our Lady of Sorrows in purple robes, but without a sword in her heart. Our Lord appeared as the Divine Redeemer cloaked in red, as a symbol of His most precious blood that He shed to redeem mankind. Our Lady of Sorrows appeared without a sword, wearing purple as a sign of sorrow and penitence. She didn't have a sword visible because she was not pointing towards any particular sorrow, but rather her whole life of co-redemptive suffering as a sign of her sorrow, suffering, and tears that she said as a co-redemptrix in union with the most precious blood of her Son, her divine Redeemer. In this apparition, among other things, our Lord and Our Lady call for recognition of her co-redemptive suffering and for reparation to her immaculate heart. As later was established in the first Saturday devotions which are so poorly attended most places in the world. This apparition also faded away and then Our Lady of Mount Carmel appeared holding the child Jesus and at one level of course this was an indication for Lucia all it would take years for her to accomplish. Why might Lucia be called the Carmel? Carmel stretching all the way back to St. Elias the father Carmelite order. Carmel is a place for gathering God's children and conquering evil and idolatry, as we see in 3 Kings chapter 18. Carmel is a place of fruitfulness and beauty, as we see in the Canticle of Canticles, chapter 7, verse 5, Jeremiah, chapter 50, verse 19, and Isaiah, chapter 35, verse 2. Carmel is a place of union with God, as we see in 3 Kings 18, verse 42. Carmel means the garden land in Hebrew. It's evocative of the Garden of Eden. Our Lady is the new Eve, and thus her new garden is in Carmel. After two letters from Pope Pius XII, personal letters, Sister Lucia was finally allowed to enter Carmel and take the habit with Our Lady's scapular, thus putting on the cloak of Our Lady and consecrating her life as a Carmelite in the service of Mary. Just as the prophet uh, St. Elias passed on his cloak to St. Elisha, in so doing, imparts a share of his spirit to him, so Our Lady passes on hers to her children that lovingly wear her scapular. Everyone should wear their scapular all the time. The Miracle of Son is an unmistakable confirmation that Our Lady had spoken to the children. The Miracle of Son is an unmistakable confirmation that Our Lady had delivered a message to the children. Heaven never acts without a purpose, and so the miracle of the sun, a miracle as we've seen of unprecedented proportions, of literally biblical proportions, is a sign pointing towards a corresponding message of unprecedented importance, a message of biblical proportions. In that regard, we'll close with a short reflection from a famous mainstream Italian journalist, Antonio Socchi, in which he speaks of the extraordinary character of the message, quote, Fatima has received on the part of the church, which in general is always very cautious concerning supernatural phenomena, a recognition without equal in history, and which places this apparition and this message objectively above and beyond all of the so-called private revelations. All of the succeeding popes have credited the apparitions with official discourses, acts, and pilgrimages, often invoking biblical comparisons. The third part of the secret that for the entire 20th century had fed apocalyptic rumors was revealed by the Holy See with an official approbation that also has no precedent in Christian history. In fact, all the previous apparitions containing a prophetic message for humanity have been made public informally without engaging the authority of the church. But in the case of the third part of the secret of Fatima, the contrary has happened. When after a long, dramatic deliberation the Pope personally decided to publish the text of the Third Secret. It was announced in the most solemn manner, from the sanctuary of Fatima, before the Pope and the visionary, by the Vatican secretary of state. And it was even published on June 26, 2000, with the accompaniment of a theological commentary by the highest doctrinal authority of the church next to the Pope, Cardinal Jonas Fratzinger, prefect of the former Holy Office, who presented the text of the Secret and his commentary at nothing less than a press conference televised worldwide. It is really impossible after all of this to continue to speak of the relative importance of the message. The exceptional words pronounced by St. John Paul II say exactly the opposite. Quote, the appeal made by Mary, our mother, at Fatima is such that the whole church feels obligated to respond to the requests of Our Lady. The message imposes an obligation on her, the church. Close quote. It is really impossible after all this to continue to speak of the relative importance of the message. The appeal made by Mary our mother at Fatima is such that the whole church feels obligated to respond to the request of Our Lady. The message imposes an obligation on the church. God never acts without a purpose. And so a miracle like this, a miracle of unprecedented proportions, points towards a corresponding message of unprecedented importance the apocalyptic overtones of the miracle itself point towards apocalyptic overtones in the message. A miracle of unprecedented proportions points to a corresponding message of unprecedented importance. The apocalyptic overtones of the miracle itself point towards apocalyptic overtones in the message. In her last public interview, Sister Lucia said, quote, Father, The Most Holy Virgin is very sad because no one has paid any attention to her message, neither the good nor the bad. The good continue on their way, but without giving any importance to her message. The bad, not seeing the punishment of God actually falling upon them, continue their life of sin without even caring about the message. But believe me, Father, God will chastise the world, and this will be in a terrible manner. Close quote. Most Holy Virgin is very sad because no one has paid any attention to message, neither the good, nor the bad. Over the next few days, we'll meditate on that message, what it means for each of us, and en route, answer the questions we posed earlier today. Day. Day.